0: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips.
1: And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, tonight, we're having an old friend come back with us tonight, John Kersey, Professor of Communications at Cuyahoga Community College. John's been talking to us over the many months about uh, what's going on with COVID, what's going on with computer, uh, social media, and disinformation. John,
2: thank you for joining us tonight. Good to be back, although I wish uh, the news about disinformation was better than it is. It seems like it's worse than ever before, doesn't it? It it sure does.
1: It's the kind of thing we thought we'd be living through for a short time, and we would sort of break through it and get back to what we used to call normal. But uh, we've been talking over these months about disinformation. John, if you can give us just a recap, what is your specialty for those who haven't heard you before? And, and how are you focused on disinformation and how do you get your information?
2: Well, sure. My, I teach media and journalism studies at Cahaga Community College. And in 2019-2020, I was honored as a Mandel Faculty Fellow to do some research and writing on the subject of disinformation. And in a nutshell, what disinformation is, is when a person or a government or some evil actor takes a little bit of information and usually it is wrapped around uh, a kernel of truth or a basic premise of truth and then slants or changes part of it and then takes the the new message which contains a lie or a, a, a terrible mistruth and then tries to propagate that to the general public. Back in the old days, it was done through the usage of what I'd call traditional media like radio, newspaper, television. Uh, nowadays, disinformation campaigns greatest friends are social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, homemade videos, and things of that nature. Well, we certainly have um, been a victim of
1: that as a society because we have people divided at least into two camps believing one set of information versus uh, believing in another set of information. Uh, Nothing has been more uh, specific than what we've seen in the COVID situation. Uh, sort of applying your area of interest into the origins of COVID, uh, how did we start getting into
2: this sort of split direction from the beginning? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think I want to kind of add to that. We could talk about the origins sure. but also the dangers, also the treatment, because in my mind, that's one mainstream of disinformation. Uh, going to the origins, though, I think one of the biggest problems for our government and from our society is there's never tried. There's never been a, a strong consensus. We haven't like a warrant Commission, so to speak, that has truly ascertained the origins of COVID nineteen. And from the get go, there have been disputes about it and disinformation campaigns around it. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm I, yeah, I can't possibly you know summarize thousands of articles in a thirty in a minute interview. But we know that no. one of the big questions is whether. Um, The Wuhan Institute of Virology was involved with the COVID-19 virus, and we know, as a matter of fact, that it was. Uh, In dispute, but in my mind, at least not in much dispute anymore, is whether or not there was gain-of-function research that was being funded in part by our own government through the National Institutes of Health that was happening through the Wuhan and in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the most recent evidence seems to indicate that most certainly there was. And that whether it was accidental or not accidental, COVID 19 virus came out of that laboratory in the latter part of 2019. And I, again, we might have arguments about it, but I think that's a pretty much established set of facts. I think where things really get off the rails, Nick, is when we start talking about the dangers of COVID 19. Uh, you might remember that in January, the end of January, when then President of 2020, when President Trump put in a ban prohibiting people from China, from coming into the United States. He was accused of being xenophobic and and racist and so on and so forth. Uh, Our current Speaker of the House went to a festival in the Chinese New Year in San Francisco in February 2020 and said, basically, we have nothing to worry about. (laughs) Where somehow, (laughs) in the period of about 35 days, COVID-19 went from being nothing to worry about to being the the greatest plague on our, our planet since the great Spanish influenza of 1918, 1919. And I think a lot of people are wondering how could that have happened so quickly and people have been caught unawares. And the answer to that is we're not 100% sure, but it just leads people to think that there must have been some form of disinformation or misinformation on the part of the government and or the media that caused people to kind of have a 180-degree change of opinion about the dangers of COVID itself.
1: Well, you know, as you're you're speaking, I'm thinking of, you know, why are we in a situation like this? And what comes to mind is that as the United States of America, we cherish very much our freedom of speech. And and people, whether they're saying one version of what they think the truth is or another, they really wrap themselves around the Constitution very quickly to say it's my right for free speech to say what I want to say. Uh, how is how is that affecting what we're, we're being... Uh, provided uh, on the media and in social media about
2: the the virus and what's true and what's not true. Nick, that's reminiscent of Voltaire's statement. I may disagree with what you say, but I defend to the utmost your right to say it. We pride, we pride ourselves on that in the United States. And the, the issue really has become uh, who decides what's true and who decides how to clamp down on what's untrue. Uh, Most recently, we've seen a a gentleman named Zuckerberg, February, March of 2021, decided Facebook was going to be the arbiter of truth and what's accurate about COVID-19 in social media, and the backlash has been just unbelievable. But reality is, is we can go back a whole year before that, because there were disagreements among elected officials in our country about, and and the the medical industry, about how to treat COVID-19, ventilators or not. a whole lie and die treatment that many people in many medical communities around the country said took effect in march April may of 2020 which seems to be the incorrect approach to the virus in the first place hey John we're talking
1: about treatments and treatments that were basically rejected early on maybe coming
2: back now what what's the cause for that well I believe it's a combination of uh, big pharma and uh, more time and more energy-directed at research on the efficacies of different treatment modalities. Uh, You might remember that uh, then-President Trump was advocating zinc and hydroxychloroquil as a a treatment modality that would reduce the the severity of the disease, and the medical community kind of boohooed him about it. Well, Big Pharma has a big role in this. Uh, They were given billions of dollars by the federal government to develop the vaccines that many Americans have taken. And once you allow big pharma into that tent, it's going to try to expand and grow its presence all the time. So there's no doubt in many people's mind that uh, the big pharma companies are are doing a PR and marketing campaign to get the government to encourage um, boosters, for example, which President Biden has been very um, insistent upon. And. Uh, it seems like the, the treatment has become, oh, no, no, the more important thing in, in our society is to get vaccinated so you don't have have the disease in the first place, and we're ignoring the fact that people are going to get it no matter what, and we've got to do something to treat people once they have it, and reducing the severity of it is a, is a critical part of it as well. But sadly, and again, we're going to get into this later on, but the politicalization of COVID-19 has almost set up camps and almost set up uh, campaigns and counter-campaigns in terms of what's accurate and what's true with respect to the treatment of the coronavirus. Uh, We do know, many nurses have talked about um, the concept of lie and die, that the treatments in February, March, April, May of last year were basically not very good, and people who got the coronavirus basically died because the treatment wasn't very aggressive, uh, so to speak. Uh, What Governor Cuomo did in New York was perhaps, and again, it's under investigation, China being criminal. When you take COVID positive patients and you basically force them out of hospitals and into nursing homes where you have people in their eighties and in their nineties that were highly susceptible to that to that virus. And then you have people there dying as a result. So I would say, you know, we, we can pat ourselves on the back about um, the vaccination and, and, and the success of Operation Warp Speed and how quickly we came up with the vaccine for the coronavirus. But I would say that only came after some trials and some errors and some uh, horrible results on the initial treatment for this coronavirus. Well,
1: we have about a minute to go in in this segment, but uh, you mentioned two camps. And uh, for us people on the outside who aren't uh, actually investigating and reading all the articles and doing the research, how do we know which camp is correct? And maybe we'll talk about that more in in the next segment. But it, it is a problem because What it's generating is the uncertainty of which way to go, who to believe, and that's generating fear with one of the most important things that we have
2: going for us. And it's generating this whole attitude of uncertainty as well. For example, in Washington state, you can't sit and eat at a restaurant unless you're vaccinated. Well, let's hold up
1: for a second. We'll be back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland, Nick Phillips with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College, a professor of communications, talking about the disinformation that is being spread around and what it's doing to us uh, in our culture. John, thank you again for joining us. Good to be here. Now, we're talking about Washington State uh, and, and how they're implementing rules if you want to go eat in a restaurant uh, how does this deal with or how does it reflect on the, the fact that we have these different, well-entrenched schools of thought right now with regard to
2: COVID, COVID treatment and vaccinations? Great questions. And it, calls, it falls under the general theme of what i have describe as the politicalization of COVID-19. And uh, interested listeners, I would refer them to a Newsweek article, secret bipartisan campaign that saved the 2020 election think it would be an insightful read uh what happened with COVID 19 why is that yeah
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah well what what happened is it became a, a a a a a great wedge issue in the 2020 election and by the way foreign powers caught onto that quite quite quickly as well and they actually ran disinformation campaigns aimed at americans in both ways so i will use the the traditional moniker the red states versus the blue states and where you see it wrapped up with first in mandates And then you see it now wrapped up in vaccinations, and you're also seeing it wrapped up in masks and mask mandates as well. All three of these become politicized, and all three of them become susceptible for both disinformation and um, outright misinformation activities. Uh, As I said, there are some states now where they're basically demanding that you show a vaccination card before they sit you down in a restaurant. And leaving aside uh, for a moment, what's that going to do to the long-term viability of, say, the restaurant business? Um, there's never been a disease in my memory where we've done that to people. we basically stigmatized them in such a way. I really feel sorry for um, friends of mine who are black. I know in the black community, uh, in some in some areas, 70, 80% of, of communities have not gotten the vaccination. And for a variety of reasons, there's um, a lot of hesitancy hesitancy in that community about getting vaccinated. And now they're kind of being forced to do to, 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 to this terrible choice to either get the vaccine or, or, or lose lots of opportunities, including perhaps jobs over this. Uh, some of it's real, but a lot of it, I think, has been propagated by uh, politicalization and by disinformation campaigns, both on both sides of the aisle. And what I mean by that is both in terms of mask mandates, non-mask mandates, vaccination mandates, non-vaccination mandates. Uh, there's evidence that that, support, that supports both sides. I don't think you can come down ironclad and say 100% of the public should be vaccinated. There are elements of the population who, A, uh, would be likely to be harmed by vaccinations, or B, because they already had COVID-19, their natural antibodies are going to be far greater than anything the vaccine would would do to support them. But that's not the way the politics are going, and that's not the way that the disinformation wars in the country are going either.
1: Uh, I'm always uh, concerned about the fact that there's this war going on between the two sides, and we find it hard to even define who the two sides are. But as you mentioned, as to whether the question uh, about the vaccine, is the vaccine or having people vaccinated good or, or really useless and just a moneymaker for the pharmaceuticals? The pandemic, is the pandemic over? Are we spending a lot of time crying that the sky is falling when we don't need to anymore. And if you do get COVID, is there a trusted treatment? Is there a single trusted treatment? We we've seemed have seem to gone from having one voice in science-based medicine to now two different positions that seem to be fighting each other, some of it based in medicine or at least people who are in medicine versus um, people who are in government. What, what's the motivation behind dividing our country and not speaking as one voice? Why do we have this big uh, dichotomy between
2: the, the two sides? Why are people frightened? People are frightened because they don't know with certainty what's going on. And what happens when people are uncertain is they kind of lash out. Um, I, I've been joking with people that the MEP doesn't match up with the MAP. And people say, what do you mean? Where MEP is short for mental, emotional, and physical. Uh, the mental, emotional, and physical toll of COVID-19, now that we're about 19 months into it, has been vast. It's been unbelievable. Uh, I have Some statistics that I do believe, right? The Center for Disease Control says its suicide attempts among girls between the ages of 12 to 17 have, in, in, have gone up by 50% during the pandemic. Uh, the Journal of Clinical Cancer Informatics points out that all kind of cancer screenings have dramatically declined because the health industry has been so focused on COVID. Our breast cancer screenings down 85%, colon cancer screenings down 75%, prostate cancer screenings down um, 74%. And that's in the four month period in, in 2020, right after the, um, the coronavirus onset. Uh, we're seeing great movement in the job market. Some people have called 2021 the year of the great resignation. And according to the Psychiatric Time, Um, The measurements that they have, clinical measurements of well-being, psychiatric well-being, we've not been this bad in our country since the Great Recession of 2008. And then we can add into this the obvious, right, which I I just call it the burnout and the the fight factor that people are, are feeling burned out about their jobs. Uh, They're feeling burned out about trying to fight with friends and neighbors who might see the situation differently than they do. Um, What's happened is just the exact opposite of the last big crisis our country faced in 9-11. You ask somebody about 9-11, and those of us with long memories remember that on 9-12, it seemed like our country was coming together, like it was united with a common sense of purpose and looking for a common enemy. Uh, after the coronavirus, we neither have a common sense of purpose or any agreement on whom the common en- enemy might be. And I think that's part of the problem. Certainly, Nick, you, you ask a question, who was contributing to that, who was causing it? Um, I can point uh, an evidentiary figure, a finger at both China and Russia. Uh, we have seen research that indicates that these two countries are intentionally launching multiple disinformation campaigns, again, aimed at different st- different objectives, But basically lying about the coronavirus, lying about its origins, lying about its efficacy, lying about treatment modalities to confuse not only Americans, but people all over the globe. Um, Perhaps the, the one in my mind that's most insidious is the Chinese, because they have repeatedly just out and out lied, even in their diplomatic communications, just out and out lied about both the origins of the coronavirus and information about treatment of it. And then they've they've held their own country up as an example of, oh, we're we're countering the coronavirus really well. Well, if you mandate lockdowns and keep people in homes for weeks on end and you put your military out on the streets to stop anybody from going outside, and basically you you don't even let anybody know if somebody's got the virus, whether they're going to live or die or get treatment, um, I suppose you could say that's a good way of handling coronavirus. That's what China's saying, at least. Uh, but having said that, I don't think any of us Americans who, who think freedoms in, and think that the ability to um, to freely move and to freely communicate with each other is critical and important would say that that's a good a good a good approach to what we ought to do to handle this disease. Hey, Nick, one other thing. And, and again, I want to I want to stress I'm a communicator. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a medicine person, but I did do some research into the uh, the great flu pandemic of 2018, 2019 and in the 2020. And that thing ran its course in about. 26 months. Yep, yep. It, it ran its course in about 26 months. So we're in about month 19 of the coronavirus right now. So what's this? Uh, beginning of October. So November, December, January, February, March, April, May. Let's see what happens come May or June of 2022. Maybe we'll be fortunate and this will run its course as well. And it will be largely a, a thing in the rearview mirror by then.
1: Well, that would be wonderful if it did. And in, in the last uh, couple of minutes here, the um, fact that we have to rely on the epidemiologist, and I know that you're mentioning disinformation campaigns by Russia and uh, China are are dividing the country. Uh, the big question we ask about following the money or following some understandable reason:
2: what's in it for Russia and China to to divide our country? Sure, strategically different objectives. But the same thing, weak in the United States. What Russia has been doing in disinformation campaign for decades is try to have people have less trust in their government, less trust in their government leaders, uh, less belief in anything that the government says. Uh, boy, uh, I would hate to say that. I, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think they've succeeded, haven't they? Uh, Chinese China, China's strategy is a bit different. They're trying to hold themselves up to the world and say we're just as good we're just as uh strong we're just as able to handle a pandemic in situations like this like anybody else in the world can and in fact we're even able to do it better than other countries and that's an unbelievably false premise you have to swallow because again there's a lot of evidence that indicates this is not only this emanate from china but chinese people took it to europe specifically to italy and many other places around the world in the early stages of the pandemic So you've got to have some suspended disbelief, but that's the message that the Chinese disinformation campaign is trying to get out. Well, we'll have to join you again to talk about this in more detail. Uh, John,
1: uh, Kersey, thank you so very much for being with us tonight, and I always enjoy hearing uh, the side of disinformation and the role it's playing in how we're treating COVID-19. Thank you so much. Nick, always great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. I can't get no I
0: can't get no
1: Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about what's being done for our veterans here in the Northeast Ohio area. And uh, here to talk to us about a group called uh, Ride with Valor, I believe. It is, um, we have Wayne Maltz and Chris Zerowski. Am I pronouncing it right, Chris? Yes,
3: yes, Chris Zerowski. Thank
1: you. Oh, very good, very good. Well, uh, Wayne, tell us a bit about the group uh, Ride with Valor. When did it start and what does it do? Well, Ride with Valor is uh,
4: kind of young. We've just been around about three years. Now, Ride with Valor is, was formed by Russell Scott Rhoda. He is the founder and CEO. Now, we're, five, we're a 501c3, and basically, what we do, we help veterans. We're concerned with certain areas. One is homelessness, aging, and disabled veterans, and we have some statistics on that. Aging in place, creating a safe and accessible home for our aging disabled veterans. Another area is Wings of Valor. That's transportation. That's getting these veterans to and from the VA or to other essential appointments and our last concern would be hearth and home it's reintegrating the veteran and their home so they don't have to move and along with that goes the hud dash
1: v-a-s-h and we'll explain that in a minute well, well, excellent. Now, how did you guys get involved in it personally? Are you veterans yourself or have a veterans connection? Yes. Both Chris and
4: I and Scott are all veterans. I'm retired. Scott's retired. Chris is still hard at work.
1: Well, I'll keep them going. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, with the veterans, how, how do you start a program like this? Where, where do you find the veterans, and how do you get to connect with veterans who need help? Well, I think how we started
4: was we were looking at some statistics, and we want to help out. We want to do something, give something back to the, our country. And I'm looking at some statistics here that are alarming, and it's uh, overall, the people that are over 60 years old. Yeah. There's 438,000 of those people. And you think they're growing? Sure, they're growing because they're getting older. And then we looked at another statistics about homelessness. And across the board, nationally, there's about 40,000 people that are homeless, homeless veterans. And they need help. And a growing concern is the female veterans that are homeless. Now, when I started in the service a long time ago, 1% or 2% were female. But now about 20% and growing in the service are female. So it would make sense that many of those 40,000 are female. And, you know, they get stuck with the kids and all the rest of the problems. A lot of times the guy just goes off, leaves them. And so they're, they're with a family. And so some of those homeless people have families. And in our experience, we ran across just that kind of a person. And Chris can tell you about that. Chris?
3: So, you know, I want to reflect back, too, on the question you first asked. How does one get started? You know, it's a perfect story of, Scott was a firefighter and ran into people all the time and found out that there were more veterans that were sitting by the wayside, unable to get the help, or stuck in a position that forced them to be homeless and decided that something needed to be done. So he started by doing fundraisers, and hence the name Ride with Valor. So he started raising money by doing rides. Uh, Then the program became so big and so well known out in our local community that we were able to become a permanent fixture and do programs like our hearth and home. And that's, you know, our pride and joy is is hearth and home because that's the one that helps the veterans the most. We have a female veteran that just over a year ago, we were able to put into a house and She had two teenage daughters, and they were squatting in a vacant building by her daughter's schools. And we were able to get a home, take it down to the studs and rebuild it into a beautiful modern home and help them get to a position where they'll soon be able to purchase that home from us.
1: You know, they're... That that is a great deal. A question, because I I talked to Wayne about this earlier, Mm -hmm. is uh, tell us about how you get a house, and where do you get it from, and what other partners do you have in government who helps you do this, and then where do you get the money to rehab these places?
3: So that's that's a good question. You know, the first house was a donation, and and Wayne could expand on that. The second one is some of these other ones we have worked through, we've gotten them from and bank in Cleveland and our lending partners and people that we've worked with, you know, we've got, I'm a real estate agent. So some of the people that I work with day to day, you know, like gold star mortgage, black tie title, those people, my own team from EXP and the VFW, you know, Wayne's a big person in the American Legion and he's been able to help uh, rally the troops there. You know, the Legion Riders have been a great support, and VFW Ohio Charities. You know, there's a bunch more, and that biggest thing is the community gets together and helps support. We get a lot of individuals that own companies, and they come in and donate the materials and donate the time. A lot of them aren't even veterans that join us, you know, and they keep working hard for us. Home Depot is one of the biggest to help support us through grants. Wayne, you want to expand a little more? Oh, yes.
4: Yes, I would. You know, the the homelessness, uh, they've made great strides in trying to end it. Significant progress has been made in due part with rapid rehousing through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Support Services, and Veterans Families. Now, we have an acronym for that. That's SSVF, Program, in a Permanent Support Housing through HUD, Veteran Support Housing. That's HUD-DASH. There's a DASH, and then it's VASH. another acronym. Now, what they do is they help a homeless veteran acquire an apartment or a house. But there's a problem with that. Many times the place does not have appliances or furniture or somewhere to keep their food cold. And so that's where we come in. We get donations from all over. And I pick them up on our trailer and we have another truck and we get them to the veterans that need them, sometimes we'll pick up a donation and take it directly over to a veteran on that same day and put it in their house. Now, that's hard to believe that HUD can put somebody into a house and not have a bed, furniture, microwave, stove, refrigerator, washer, dryer, and that's where we come in to take up the slack with Ride with Valor. Chris, do you want to say
3: anything more about
4: that?
3: Yeah, you know, yeah, it's amazing as, as you look at that VA program, there's a lot of people in the community that are starting to learn and work with us and putting veterans into their own investment properties with that program, the uh, HUD-VASH program. So, you know, if there's not a spot available through our program, we've come together with certain people. Uh, I myself have relayed some of the names and given them, to some of the local investors out there in the west side of Cleveland and Lakewood. And they've been able to help veterans as well. You know, we'll go back to uh, Hearth and Home. You know, our second project here in Collinwood is coming to a close. And we're always proud of the veteran and the people that do the work. That's our key to our success. And that house in Collinwood is gonna be our second biggest project. And we're putting an eighth veteran who is disabled he and his service dog are going to be moving in there in the next month or so. You know, we've been working real hard on that home, and it's, it's something that's going to be amazing because that has even brought the community together in common with the uh, Slovenian house out there and the locals, uh, just everybody. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Well,
1: let's, let's do this, Chris. Let's take a short break. We're, okay. uh, we're talking to uh, Wayne Maltz and Chris uh, Zorowski from Ride uh, with Valor for Veterans. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Wayne Maltz and Chris Zierofsky concerning Ride with Valor. Valor, it's a group that is promoting and helping veterans here in the Cleveland area. So thank you guys for joining us tonight. Uh, Wayne, how many people are really active in your, your organization?
4: Uh, dozens and growing all the time. People call Scott, they call me, they call Chris. And we really do have a lot of good people out there that want to help veterans. They call us up, what can we do? We have even had Boy Scout troops out there helping us paint. Now, that's funny, because they get more paint on themselves than they need to do on the walls, and they
1: all have a good time. And they go well, you mentioned with that. calling. You, you mentioned calling. What's a good phone number for them to call you guys? 216-
4: two eight zero five eight two four. Let me say that again. That's two one six two eight zero five eight two four and that's Ride with Valor. You know
3: even so, oh, so you can go ahead Chris you can take a look on our website and it's ridewithvalor.org. org. Uh, and
1: uh, someone, that's that's I, great. I I see that on there now. Go ahead.
3: Hey Nick,
4: I'd like to tell everybody how a veteran, a homeless veteran that has basically nothing in their credit shot, how do they get a home? What do? How do, do they is, end up with the home? Pardon me. No, go ahead. How, how do, do they, they end up with the home? Yes. How do they end up with the home? Well, Scott Rota has been working with other agencies and they do vetting on these people, and we get recommendations. They get the recommendations, but Scott makes the final decision who goes in the home. Now their credit shot. And so what Scott's done is he's taken an investment in these people. He gets them a credit card, sits them down, explains that bills have to be paid. They want to do good. Most, most people do. They do want to do good. And so the veteran pays 50% of the appraised value of the home. Now, let me go over that. The home is dilapidated shape. We go in there and redo the whole thing. We stuff it full of furniture. Not only that, knives, forks, spoons, ottomans, towels, sheets, TV, whatever they can come up with, and then... There's an appraisal done on the home, and over a period of years, after they build their credit up, then they can purchase this home to make it their own at 50% the appraised value. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about the credit
3: team? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, it's always about team building and building the veterans up, and veterans stick together and help one another. So, our program, you know, as Wayne said, sometimes they have a real difficult problem with credit. So, we ensure that the veteran gets credit counseling and helps build that. As Wayne said, you know, Scott will help get a credit card or some kind of loan that helps build the credit of that individual. We also help them ensure that they're getting some kind of occupational therapy and stay employed. You know, it's not just, where they get into the house and then, hey, you're on your own, good luck. It's we help rebuild them and get them restructured into civilian life. You know, get them used to making the payments, staying on time, building their credit, helping them and coaching them, making sure they stay at work, and getting the social services as well as any of the VA services that they need. We want to keep them successful. You know, we mm-hmm. want them to be able to purchase the home. That's. Well, the I, have a, I have a question. Yeah.
1: Well, When you start, when you start with a veteran, uh, where does the money start from? Do they get VA money? Do they get money from uh, welfare? Where does the money come from? And then do you guys supplement that in, in any way? So
3: sometimes we'll supplement the utilities, but most of the time the money comes from the, the VA, the HUD-VASH program. That's the rental program where they're provided a voucher and that funds their rental income or I'm sorry not the rental income that that is their rent money so that goes
1: but you guys the- you guys would help with uh, filling out the forms and making sure it all works
3: oh yes yeah mhm how, m- how many sure veterans do you guys
1: uh, how many veterans do you guys support and have you since you started
3: oh well sometimes it's It's hard to count because you know, we're we're talking about hearth and home and placing veterans into apartments, but we got another program that triples just that program and puts us over a thousand veterans. Because we've got aging in place too, Nick. Aging in place is where we help our veterans. You know, a lot come back and are disabled and are either forced out of their home because of their disability or maybe too old to have that mobility within. Well, Ride With Valor is able to come in and help adapt the home to their disability, whether it's putting a wheelchair ramp in, a stair chair, or just moving certain doorways so that it's more accessible for them. Uh, That, I think, is one of our our greatest projects as well. You know, we helped a 40-year-old paralyzed veteran who, after surgery, just couldn't move around. So, you know, he was in a nursing home and away from his wife and kids. That was eight years that he wasn't at home. And Ride With Valor was able to get this guy back, this veteran, back in his house. That is what it means to help.
1: Well, when we talk about... I saw it listed here as Wings of Valor for Transportation...
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how Do you pay for, like, uh, Ubers, or do you have people who are volunteer drivers, or uh, how does that yeah. occur?
4: Yes, we have a, a van, and it's fully ADA-equipped, and no, we don't get anything. It's all volunteer. I'd like to see that change. Uh, but, well, right well, now, well, we have some good people that are volunteering. At a moment's notice, they come over here to pick up the van, take the the veteran to their necessary doctor or to the VA.
1: If you're listening and you're a veteran or know a veteran, uh, do they need to qualify to uh, take advantage of your services or what, what all is needed of them if they call? Go ahead, Chris.
3: There is an application process. You know, it's just one to justify the need. And the second one is to make sure that they are a veteran. You know, at times, there, there's people that uh, sign up for programs that they're not eligible for. So we want to make sure that we're we're saving the services and the funds for our veterans. Because that, that's our first priority. We also help the widows and some first responders, too, that need it. But, uh, you know, we have to have that background check to make sure everything is good.
4: And, and Nick, before we leave... Yes. Yes. I just need a minute to go over and thank some people. And by thanking these certain organizations, then you'll see that it's not only us with Ride with Valor. There's a number of people out there that support us, and we need that support. So can you give me a, a minute or so by the end of this broadcast to
1: list? Well, we're, almost, we're okay. almost there, so you have, you have one minute, Wayne. Go ahead. Okay. Like First thing I'd like to do, I'll talk quick. Is, at, is thank Nick Phillips
4: from Phillips & Millie, a company LPA, Middleburg Heights, and which, people should know, Nick is an Air Force veteran with 31 years. Good. Whoa. Pete Rosesco. Well, owner you. of Pete and Pete Containers and Boyes Excavating. Home Depot Foundation. Angelo Petiti. Of Petiti Garden Centers. In-time trucking from Michigan. John Lanning. Sharon Chevy, Randolph, Ohio, Guaranteed Rates, Strongsville, Angie's Great, Gold Star Mortgage, EXP Realty, Idea Lease, Foolhardy Construction. And again, thank you all out there, veterans and non-veterans that support Ride With Valor.
3: You know, Nick, one extra special thank you to to our families and our team. You know, we've got a team of fantastic people like Dale, Brandon, Jamie, Tyler, and Brandon again, that help us and support this team. It's a fantastic organization and we invite you to come help us and join us. It
1: sounds wonderful. Well, we're out of time for tonight, but Wayne and, and Chris, thank you so much for your work. And I'd like to mention that phone number again, 216-280-5824. 280-5824. So in any event, you guys, thank you so very much for joining us tonight, and and good luck. You're doing a wonderful thing for our veterans. Thank you, Nick. Thank you much. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Be safe and healthy. Good night. And, break.
0: and I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind